Happy Sunday, everybody. Good morning. I was involved in several conversations this week um, where the topic of unanimity came up. This idea of trying to reach a consensus when making a decision, uh, that can be difficult when we're talking about two people. It becomes even more difficult the larger a group becomes, correct? Uh, I, I hope that there's a lot of things that we can universally agree upon that I will say today, but just to make sure I get at least one in, I will start with this this morning. I would hope we can find consensus in agreeing that falling back is better than springing forward. Amen? until 5.30 tonight when it starts to get dark and then maybe we'll change our minds. But for the next four hours, we will appreciate the extra hour of sleep that we've received. Um, I mentioned this before about the sermon series, uh, the study through the book of Judges, that my original, um, I don't know if inspiration or maybe influence is the right word for this sermon series, it began many, many years ago uh, when I was a youth minister. Uh, and as a youth minister, I was in this season where I wanted to try to start focusing more on um, writing and, and preaching my, my own messages to, to the teens, right? Whether it be in Sunday school or, or at our youth group that met in the middle of the week. I'd always mix in some video teachings and things um, from Right Now Media, which if you don't know, as a person who attends Meadowbrook, it is free to you. If you don't have it, look at the back of your bulletin and you can get it. Uh, but I'd mix in some video teachings because I thought it was important for the young people to, to hear different voices. Right, hear people that maybe they do, they think a little bit differently than I do, or they look a little bit differently than I do, or they come from a different place than I do. All different, right? But, but all coming and bringing the same message, the same message that Jesus Christ is King. And for some reason, I decided that what I wanted to do now is I wanted to preach through the book of Judges with our youth. Uh, there was something that just kind of called me to this book. I knew that I wanted to preach on something from the Old Testament, but I wanted it to be something that would captivate a teenager's attention, something that would have real-world contemporary application for them, and something, again, that would ultimately draw their attention, that would fix their eyes back on Jesus as their Savior. I had heard, certainly before this point, I had heard all of these strange, strange stories in the book of Judges, but, but this was the first time that I had ever um, sat down and looked at this book from beginning to end as one continuous story that I wanted to tell from point A to Z, and I'm glad that I did, because not only do I hope it drove home some points for middle school and high school students that, that, that maybe are still with them today, but, but going through this study with those teens in the book of Ju Judges, it was something that uh, stirred this calling into me to, to want to preach more often. A youth minister gets the opportunity to teach a lot, but, but there's a difference. You see, you guys, as, as hopefully fully formed adults, you're kind enough to let me get up here and speak for 35, maybe even 40 minutes, right, before you start getting restless. Teenagers, not always so much, though. Teens are not always going to be so gracious, so when I fast-forwarded to the summer of 2023 and I found myself again feeling that call to preach on something from the Old Testament that would build us up, that would edify us as Christians, again, my heart was stirred to the book of Judges. And I thought, how great would it be to see if maybe the same type applications and the same approaches that spoke to those teens, would it also speak to, let's just be kind and say, the more experienced among you? It's not my job to say whether my experiment is working or not. The only thing that I can tell you is that I have thoroughly enjoyed putting these sermons together. I've enjoyed it because the truth is there is just something, again, that is so raw and is so honest about the book of Judges. 
There's something in the book of Judges, too, that, that often can be too easy for a preacher to overlook. It's something very basic, something very essential to the Christian walk. Most importantly, it's also essential to our call to conversion. You see, in order for, for our Christian walk, in order for that call to, uh, to conversion to exist, we have to understand that all of us, all of us as a member of the human race, regardless of our gender or age or race, anything else that you may want to say separates us, we have to understand that the baseline for humanity, when separated from God, will always revert back to evil or to wickedness. And then that's not an easy thing for many of us to hear. It wasn't an easy thing for teenagers to hear. I know it is really, really hard for us, for us as adults, to hear this as well. You see, but without accepting this truth, what is it that will convict us that we even need to be saved? The question we would ask is, what, what do we need to be saved from? Because deep down, aren't we all just good people trying to do our best? Beyond our personal call to conversion, whatever would stir in our hearts and call us into the mission field? Right? Why bother to go out to all peoples all, in all the world and tell them how they too can be saved? Why not just tell them to rest on their laurels as a good person? Why not tell them, like the, the bumper sticker says, why not tell them to coexist and just tell people, just be nice? I hope that what you have seen through the book of, of Judges up to this point, I hope you see that it has shown us that there is no such thing as a righteous man based upon his own deeds or based upon his own merit. Now, now, certainly some are going to be more wicked in their deeds than others, but from the moment that we became separated from our Creator, it was guaranteed that evil would take up residence in us and among us and around us. From that moment, it was guaranteed that we were going to be drafted into this constant battle that will happen for all of time, this struggle between good and evil. And it means that often, yes, it feels like the evil it is closing in upon us from all sides. I hope you may have also noticed throughout the scriptures that we have gone through in Judges so far that God, that God is also not afraid to punish evil, to punish wickedness. That God punishes disobedience, just as any wise, loving parent would. But I hope you've also seen that God was also never too far the people whom he loved, they never truly left his sight. You see, the, the, the natural pull of wickedness, though, it is very strong. And from our own willpower, if we are left to our own devices, often our own willpower is not going to be strong enough to combat our sinful nature on our own. So what we've seen so far in the book of Judges is that even after the people have been redeemed, Time and time again, and even after they've seen miracles, often, very quickly, they would regress. And last week we read Judges chapter 13, and we looked at Judges chapter 13 through this lens as a, as a setup for what's going to come next in the second half of this book. Uh, we heard a very familiar story told last week, a story that we've heard God tell before, the story of him approaching a barren woman with good news. This good news that she was going to bear a son and that the boy, that he would be set aside in service to God. And based on that, something we have not seen happen before with any other judge, we would be led to believe that, that surely this time, 
that surely this judge, this divinely inspired son, that he would be the redeemer that would stick around. He would be the one that would succeed. He would be the one that would keep all of the commandments. He would certainly keep his vows to the Lord. He would redeem the Israelites from their oppression. And he would make sure that the people would never again forget who their God was that rescued them. Surely, the great and mighty judge Samson would be the archetype. This one that we could still look back to today as an example and say, that, that's how we should live. I mean, after all, Samson was called from the womb to this job. Again, we heard last week how his mother dedicated him via vow to the Lord, how he was made this uh, Nazarite from birth. Remember last week, if you're not familiar with the vow of the Nazarite, the three big things that you want to remember about this vow is that first off, Samson was to be kept from ever eating anything from the grapevine, okay, especially wine or alcohol, that Samson should never cut his hair, no razor should ever touch his head, and he should not come in contact with a dead body. Those were the big three points. The angel that came and visited Samson's unnamed mother, that this is what he commanded of her. And as chapter 13 ends, things are sounding pretty good. It says that Samson grew. It says that God blessed Samson. We're, we're even told that the spirit of the Lord began to move in Samson as well. Right, this sounds really encouraging. It sounds like we're finally going to get the hero that we have been waiting for. It sounds like God is now raising up a young man who, is going, who he, God, is going to do amazing things through. But unfortunately, Samson is still just a mere mortal, just a man. Samson possesses the same exact free will that you and I do. This Samson who was given every advantage, he had every opportunity to know the Lord and to see God move through him. This Samson who would have a chance to see many called back to their creator by his actions. This Samson, this, this chosen one, what we end up seeing is right from the start, we're going to learn that Samson is more interested in flexing his free will than he is in following his calling. Again, Samson, this chosen one, and uh, you guys have seen, um, I have a little bit of some nerdy tendencies uh, over the last couple of years, and one of the things that always brings the nerd in me out uh, is Star Wars. Any Star Wars fans? Come on, like two of you. There's a lot of people that are maybe need to be I need to pray for you to tell the truth. But anyway, it is a deeply held personal belief of mine that if you add a lightsaber to any story, it makes it better. If there is a laser sword in a movie, it is worthwhile for me to pay attention to. I like the old Star Wars movies. I like the new Star Wars movies. I like them all. And Samson, there's something about this character, Samson, this chosen one that, again, excites that Star Wars nerdiness in me. Because when I think of Samson, who I think of, who I relate him to, is Anakin Skywalker. Because Anakin Skywalker was the chosen one. He was the one who was supposed to restore balance to the force. But again, what did Anakin do? He, he pursued forbidden love. Anakin embraced his most basic emotions. And by the peak of his story, Anakin Skywalker was more villain than he was hero. So keep that in mind as we talk about the chosen one, Samson. As chapter 14 begins, we're going to get our first glance glimpse, glimpse into the young man that Samson has grown into. We're going to start by looking at the first three verses of Judges 14 today, starting in verse 1. It says, Samson went to Timnah, 
And at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. This is our first impression of Samson. It's the first words we hear from his mouth. And I guess another thing that was true in the time of Judges that is still true today is you do only get one chance to make a first impression. And this is Samson's. And it's not very pretty. Right off the bat, bat we see that Samson is insolent. We see that Samson is, is a fiercely independent young man. We learn that he sees absolutely nothing wrong with just kind of popping over into the pagan culture of his enemy. He, he isn't worried about finding himself in any compromising situations. He is a very typical man, maybe even a stereotypical man. And on one of his little jaunts into enemy territory, he sees something shiny that catches his eye. It's a girl. And based upon what Samson sees, he decides that she is most definitely wifey material. We're not told of any worry of her character. No worry of her family history. No worry about what gods she may worship. And certainly no worry about what his God's will might be for him. See, for Samson, the equation is very simple. If it looks good, I have to have it. And I have to have it right now. Samson, we're going to see, has a very obvious weakness for pretty girls. And it's a weakness that is going to continue to snare him throughout his entire life. And to their credit, his parents, they, they, they do try to talk him out of doing this thing. At surface level, maybe it looks like that they are aware of God's commands about marrying outside of their tribe. But I think what's just as noticeable about what his parents do say is also what his parents do not say. What, what they don't say, again, at least raises the question in my mind if Samson's parents are truly concerned about him breaking God's law. Or were they just worried about Samson bringing shame upon their family culturally, right? By joining and connecting himself to a people that would be considered to be uh, the bottom rung, the uncircumcised people in Israelite society. What they don't say is, is Samson, you know, that this intermarriage is forbidden by the Lord. You know, they don't go back and, and quote Deuteronomy 7. They also don't remind Samson of his special status, that was bestowed on him by God, or how this might compromise the calling that he's been given. So again, I at least have to question, is this even just a cultural or an ethnic issue to his parents? Is this really just about them wanting to keep their family line clean and desirable? Is this just about them wanting to be able to go to the Israelite country club without grandkids that are going to bring them shame and embarrassment? Samson hears his parents' objection, but again, he is insolent. He is disobedient. Samson makes it clear he has no concern for their worry. His simple response is, well, she looks okay to me. Samson's completely calloused as to what he is about to do. And this is, again, a theme that we're going to see continue through the rest of the book of Judges. Uh, something being right in man's eye. This is a theme that's going to continue week after week as we finish out this book. And it all starts right here with the chosen one, Samson. 
Over and over, we're going to read that people did whatever they thought was right in their own eyes. And over and over again, we're going to see that that type of decision-making led to death and it led to destruction. The next verse, verse 4. Uh, verse 4 can be a little tricky because on the surface, it be appears to present us with a bit of a stumbling block, so let's not skip over it. Uh, verse 4 says, His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. So here's why that verse can be a little bit difficult, because we understand and we know that the God we serve, that he is eternal and that he is unchanging. We do not know him to be a God who, who just breaks the rules all willy-nilly to suit his momentary needs. I'm not saying that God isn't allowed to do that, mind you. He is God. We are but men. But I don't believe that what we just read is saying that God was okay with Samson breaking his law just because God wanted to rile up the Philistines. You see, God being omnipotent, he knew what was going to happen. But this verse does not tell us that God is blessing sin. Simply because he knows what the results are going to be, if you think this way, if you think God is blessing the sin of Samson's, I think you're making a mistake. Verse 4 is not saying that God is happy that Samson is defying his law. You see, what verse 4 is saying is that in spite of Samson breaking the law, God's will is still going to be done. And this is a very important distinction for us to make in understanding the nature and the character of our God. And this could lead us down a whole rabbit hole that would take the rest of our time where we could talk about how our free will uh, intersects with divine plans, but that is not the message for today. For today, I just want to make sure we don't skip over that verse. I want to make sure that you are aware God is not pleased with his boy Samson and the sinful decision that he is making. Nor is he going to be pleased with many of the decisions that we are going to see Samson make throughout his life. But God is big enough that the choices of man cannot stop his story from being written. You see, the Israelites at this point, they have no heart to take action against the Philistines. So God is going to use Samson's actions to take action against them. Samson leaves his parents with no choice. They pack up, they make uh, the, the hike back to this village to make wedding plans. Uh, it's about a five or a six mile journey from where Samson and his parents lived to this Philistine village. I know that sounds like a long walk for us. Many of us are thinking that's all the steps we would need for an entire month to make our Fitbit happy. But, it, but in this time, this is relatively close. This is probably the next village over from them. And again, notice that the, the people have no qualms or no worries. They're completely comfortable just walking into a Philistine town. Because this enemy, this enemy has been among them and been lording over them for decades and decades and decades at this point. Samson's walking ahead of his family and a surprise rushes at him. We're told a young lion leaps out, rushes at Samson, roaring. Here's what it says in verse 6. It says, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, him being Samson, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. There's something we should pause on here for a moment. He tore a lion into pieces like one tears a young goat. Talk about an analogy that I can't relate to. Uh, does anyone know, is it easy to tear a young goat into pieces? I have no idea. 
Reading between the lines, I'm assuming that it must be a pretty simple task to, to tear a young goat apart. Uh, if we want to translate this verse for Gen Z, right, maybe it should say something like, he tore the lion apart into pieces like you would tear open the perforated lion on an Amazon package. Okay, that, that's probably a better analogy. Even here, though, we aren't told if Samson is even aware of the presence of God rushing upon him. He also, for some reason that's not explained to us, he does not tell his parents about what happened with the lion, which is very odd. As a man, and guys, agree, I hope you agree with me here, if you killed a lion with your bare hands, tore it apart like an Amazon package with your bare hands, wouldn't you be a little braggadocious about that? Wouldn't you be taking some selfies with the lion in the background behind you? Maybe telling, you know, whoever would listen to you how strong you were. Certainly, if your personality was like Samson's, you would. But for some reason, Samson remains quiet. Perhaps it's God that's keeping Samson silent on this. Perhaps he has a lesson in store for him. Let's keep looking forward. So Samson's parents, they arrive in the Philistine town, and they negotiate with this young lady's family. The girl's parents, apparently, they have no reservations or qualms about her marrying outside of their people, so the arrangements are made for a big Philistine wedding. When Samson comes back and he returns sometime later for his bride, for his nuptials, his curiosity gets the better of him, and he wonders, what happened with that lion that I tore apart? Verses 8 and 9, it says, After some days he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold... There was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of a lion. It's kind of gross. But what Samson does here isn't just gross, it's doubly wrong. You see, in general, coming into contact with a carcass... Uh, like this, it, it would have made an Israelite unclean under the law. A good Jewish boy would have left that honey sit exactly where it was, and he would have kept walking, kept going on his way. But we also remember that Samson, above the law that was given to all of his people, Samson was also set aside and set apart as a Nazarite. Right? Rule number three, don't come in contact with a cadaver. But again, we see a pattern in Samson's life. If Samson sees something that is desirable, if he sees something that is sweet, it must be his. And it must be his immediately. There's no reasoning with Samson. There's no concern for God's will. If it looks sweet, Samson is going to have a taste. And then not only does he defile himself, but he purposely defiles his parents by not telling them where he got the honey from. And who knows, again, I don't know what their heart was like. Perhaps they would not have cared and they would have partaken. But he didn't give them the choice. Maybe his parents were completely ignorant to the laws that were given to the people in Leviticus. And as I got to this point, I paused for a second and I thought... Man, I, I should have saved that guacamole versus wasabi story for this week. If you weren't here last week, you don't know what I'm talking about. But I should have held on to that story for one more week because it would have fit into this, this part of the sermon so flawlessly. Because Samson saw a pretty girl, and he thought, man, this is going to be sweet. 
Samson saw the honey, and he thought, that looks really, really sweet. But by taking some, by, by stepping outside of his father's will, Samson hurt himself. Blythe saw that bonus guacamole, as she called it, and she was expecting it to be so, so sweet. But instead, she ended up with something that I would have never wanted for her, right? Tingly sinuses from the uh, nose-clearing scent of wasabi. Now, when, when I taught this lesson to teenagers, um, right here is where we would have stopped and we would have camped out and we would have focused. Because based on what we've seen from Samson so far, do you think that there's a lesson here for our young people today? It shouldn't take a scholar to see it. It's nice sometimes because the lessons just kind of write themselves. Look at Samson's love life. You better believe that there were a few kids in our youth room that I was making extra eye contact with when I was talking, like hoping that would make the spirit convict them a little bit harder than if I didn't. But here's a question. Do you think there's any adults here today that maybe need to hear the same thing? But we're not so quick to want to admit that. You see, some of us as Christians, as we mature, we have a tendency to believe that some of the obvious stuff, some of the simple stuff, as grown-ups, we don't really need those lessons anymore, do we? Right? Too many Christians get to this point where they believe that the simple stuff or the basics, that they are, they are beyond it. They come to church and what they want is they want the great mysteries of Scripture to be revealed. And while that is certainly a worthwhile endeavor, don't get me wrong, the truth is sometime us, sometimes us grown-ups, we need to hear the basics as well. And perhaps most of you all are already married to that wonderful Christian girl or that wonderful Christian guy. So if I were to just go into a diatribe here about how we're not to be unequally yoked to a non-believer, you would start to yawn. But the question I want to pose to you today is, what else are you doing? Or what else are you looking at? Or what else are you thinking about that right now makes you go, man, that looks so sweet? You see, I think we have to remember, it wasn't just Samson, and it wasn't just the Israelites who were called out from the people around them of the world. We were as well. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10 says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So again, I get it. The, the lesson here for you maybe isn't that you, 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 know, you made a mistake and you're not married to that good Christian boy or girl. But what could you possibly learn from Samson's story today? Right? You, you say, Daniel, I'm not out shopping for a Philistine honey. H-U-N-N-Y. Right? You say, Daniel, I'm not scraping honey, H-O-N-E-Y, out of a dead lion carcass. At least I hope that you're not. Kroger's is right down the street. Honey is a bit expensive, but I promise you, you don't have to go to that extreme. The question is how, that you may want to consider today is how often do you consider what, sta what the standards are for us as modern-day Christians? And see, we are quick to want to, to be braggadocious about the freedom that we have in the New Covenant, aren't we? 
We'll, we'll tell anyone that we are so grateful that we don't live under the challenges of the law as the Israelites once did. This law that was intended to keep us in constant fear, needing to make offering or atonement for our shortcomings. As Christians, we love the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. You should love that freedom. You should know that you have that freedom. You should know you have the freedom to go and eat that honey. You have the freedom to go and chase down that hottie. You have free will. You can absolutely do it. And you know what? You can be forgiven afterwards. But is that all that you want from your Christian experience? Is the reason that you're here today is simply to know that God's grace is sufficient so that you can go out and enjoy your freedom? Have you, been considered, have you considered that you might actually be called to a higher ceiling, to being held to a higher standard than even those who were under the Old Testament law? What if what we just read in 1 Peter is true? What if you are a person whom God has set aside? What, what if you are a citizen of this holy priesthood, a holy nation? What if you are chosen what if you were made a part of this great people for one reason, and one reason only, so that you would proclaim the righteousness and the excellence of a holy God? What if you used to just be nobody from nowhere, but now you are called God's elect? Do you think that there might be a very good reason that God would still care that he would still have a vested interest in how we exercise the freedom that was paid for at such an extraordinary price. Look at the next two verses in 1 Peter. This is verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We are all just sojourners. We are passing through this world because, again, you have been made a part of a different people. This people who have been called to be among the world but not of the world. And the standard that I am now held to as a Christian, in my humble opinion, is greater because of one simple reason. You see, God has standards for me because he wants the people who I am here walking alongside of every day to look at the life of Daniel and maybe just get a very small glimpse of what his kingdom looks like. And that is an incredibly heavy calling. And it's not just my calling, mind you, right? Just because I get thrown up here when they clip a microphone to my jacket, that does not mean that this calling is just for me or this calling is just for missionaries who are heading to a faraway land. This scripture was written for you. This scripture was written and recorded for the church. So I can look at all the Christians in this room today. I can look at... I always use Ron Murphy as an example because I know he's willing, but I can look at Ron Murphy who's been walking faithfully with the Lord for longer than I have walked upon the earth. And I can look at Ron and I can say, Ron, this is the standard that you have been called to. I can look at Zane Cox back there, barely 15 years old, baptized maybe about, what, a year ago? And I can look to Zane too and I can say, Zane, this is the standard that you have been called to. 
You see, God is calling us to, to be holy, sanctified, to be a walking billboard for heaven. In Samson's time, the law existed to keep the people separate and safe from the world. Because the people of the world, they were just plain yucky. They wanted to force their own gods. They wanted to force their own standards upon the Israelites. Right? That was dangerous to God's story that he was writing. But I would argue that the stakes today are actually higher for us. Because now as we pass through this world, this, this great responsibility has been heaped upon our shoulders to drag as many others as we possibly can with us. So when we mess up, when we chase after the things of this world that look just so, so sweet in the moment, when our conduct in front of the lost becomes such that we are in a way defaming the faith, what is it that we have done? What is the cost? As I was writing, I stopped writing here because I was thinking about putting together a list of all the different things in this world that look so sweet that we might start wanting to chase after. And I thought about making this list, but I realized that there is never, never a chance that I would find unanimity and I could speak to everyone's temptation if I were to make this list. If I were to make a list, I would succeed at convicting maybe a few of you. I might even succeed in convicting myself. But there's no way that I could reach everyone because there's no universal agreement as to what you may find sweet enough to tempt you. What might cause you to stumble Maybe something that I can easily hop over or vice versa. So I just want to put the onus on you this morning. If there is something... If there is something that as I've been speaking has immediately popped into your head as I was talking, if you know, if there's that thing that popped into your head that you know seems so sweet but has the danger of pulling you away and affecting your testimony, right? that's not because Daniel subliminally somehow put that in your mind this morning. That is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You'd be wise to listen to him. If you want your life and if you want your testimony to be used to one day make heaven crowded, you should listen to that voice. I have to leave you today with a strange story because that's what we've been doing through the book of Judges. And I'm going to do it quickly, but I can't ignore it because it contains one of, uh, not my favorite Bible verses, but I think one of the funniest verses in the whole Bible. As this chapter comes to a close, uh, Samson is preparing to marry this uh, Philistine girl. Again, big Philistine wedding. Uh, the people of the girl's family, uh, due to their traditions, they provide Samson, it says, with 30 companions to feast with. Uh, I would kind of probably think of these guys almost as like uh, security guards to a certain extent, right? They're there to keep an eye on this stranger that's here among their people. But a wedding feast is always nice, isn't it? We, we still feast, right? When it's time for us to have a wedding, we get together, we have a party, we eat good food. See, but the, the type of feast, though, that they're describing that Samson is a part of, it's not like having a big dinner at Grandma's house on Thanksgiving. Uh, th this feast that is described for us, uh, think of it more as like a seven-day-long rager. It's drinking, it's partying in the home of the bride. And who remembers the very first thing that Samson was to keep himself away from as part of his Nazarite vow? Alcohol, right? Wine, strong drink. So another check goes against Samson. 
And in the midst of his presumed inebriation, Samson makes a bet with the Philistine men. He says, I have a riddle that you will never be able to answer. And they make a wager. This is the riddle. Uh, it's not going to be up on the screen. I'm just going to read it to you here. This is verse 14. It says, Samson said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And it says in three days they could not solve the riddle. No one could solve this riddle. Why? Well, no one was there with Samson when he killed the lion. No one was there with Samson when he ate the honey. And the men of the town, they began to become worried that they were going to lose this bet, that they were going to be out some big bucks. So they go to Samson's new wife, and they're going to entice her, or actually what they do is they threaten her, to make her give them the answer to the riddle. What happens next is Samson's wife does an absolutely epic job of nagging. I would say, ladies, take notes, but please don't take notes. Three days, she whines and she cries about how Samson doesn't love her if he's not willing to share all of his secrets. And Samson, being the just genius man that he is, he eventually relents and he tells her the answer. He tells her the story of the lion and of the honey, and what does she do with this information? But she immediately betrays him and runs and tells the men of her village the answer to the riddle. Verse 18, and this should be back up on the screen. It says, the men of the city said to him on the seventh day, before the sun went down, they come back. They say, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And then here's this verse. It says, he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. They plowed with his heifer. Men, even if your wife betrays you, do not call her a heifer. It's not a good idea. Samson lost this bet in a completely unfair manner, even though it was kind of unfair to start with. But instead of paying his debts, what do you think this great man of God, this chosen one, what, what did he do? This one that was called to be set apart, to be the people's redeemer. Do you know what he does? Samson goes out and he murders 30 people. He steals their belongings. He uses the booty from this raid to pay his debt to the Philistine men. And then it says in his anger, he stomps home to his mommy and daddy's house. This is how the chapter ends, the very last verse, verse 20. It says, Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. There's no way this is going to be a problem, right? I'm sure Samson, when he hears this news, he's going to act completely reasonably and, and rationally and, and figure out a good wise answer to this problem. I would say you have to come back next week to find out, but obviously you don't. You could take some time this week, and you could read chapter 15 ahead of time, and you can see what's going to happen. You can see the chain reaction that occurs. This chain reaction that all started just because Samson saw something shiny, it caught his eye, and he thought that it was going to be so, so sweet. Pray with me.